like the microphone wasn't on, quit whining, you have Jesus. That's what that song is. What's wrong with you? Well, my friends despise and forsake me. Well, take it to the Lord in prayer. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. It's wonderful to be with you tonight. I hope that it's not, I trust that it's not too cold for anyone in here. I did ask for the air dryers to be turned on. Um, Y'all know air conditioning comes from a desire to dehumidify. That's how it started. And then they said, that's pretty nice. Let's put it in the movie theaters. Um, If you get cold, just just raise your hand and say, I'm cold. And uh, someone will go turn it off. And everyone else will be angry at you. But we can, we can tell them to take it to the Lord in prayer. And uh, they can stop feeling sorry for themselves. <laughs> All right, that's enough joking around. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us why we assemble. The word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's so sharp it pierces even to the dividing of asunder or the dividing apart of soul from spirit like bones from marrow, like joints from marrow. Something you and I can't do, but God's word can do, can separate something so uh, inseparable, the soul from the spirit. And in in God's ability to do that with his word, he becomes a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What that means is that what we want, what we think, what what I thought is always supposed to be subjected to the revelation of God, what he thinks and what he tells us. And that's one of the reasons God gives us his word. But what shocks us about that statement in Hebrews 4.12 is that it is alive. The word of God is alive and powerful. I would put that verse right next to the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he says at the conclusion of his message through tears that this is our farewell. He says, now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. That's what it says, to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are, in the Greek it says, being sanctified, those who are being and currently progressing and being sanctified. And, um, and there's no greater commendation, there's no greater uh, repository Paul can give them to than the word, because the word is everything. And when it's not everything to us, my prayer for you, and you can pray for me, when it's not everything to us, the gut check is, what, what are we doing? We're wasting our time. And we're going to talk about wasting time tonight. We're not going to waste time. We're going to try to avoid it in John chapter 15. I always give you a moment of silent prayer, the opportunity to re-engage your spiritual life if you've put it um, to the side and stopped abiding in Christ. If you've made the choice to say, I'm going to have my way. And therefore, God not have his way. I always afford that moment to re-engage. If we confess our sins, John tells us God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. We pause tonight, Father, to commemorate uh, in prayer your glory for sharing yourself with us. 
We have no words really to express the excellencies of your self-disclosure through your son, through your word. But as we pay attention to your word tonight, Father, we ask for transformation. We ask to grow. We ask that we would obey the command of Scripture of the Apostle Peter to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, to grow more toward you, more into uh, the character that you have shown us through your Son, and more to be about your glory, to bring about your intentions. Father, willingly, as you inform us and transform us in the use of our volition. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like you to do tonight is, uh, tonight's kind of an unplugged, uh, you have the mountains back there, isn't that nice? Um, we're going to be in John 15 for most of the evening. Joel, the message tonight is in the series. We're going to continue to add here and there to basic Christian theology. Or the, it's the uh, basics of the Christian faith. And, um, and we're in John 15 because um, I think this should be something we have on our minds all the time. And uh, we, we, well, we don't read John, but once in a while, if we're reading through, and um, the doctrine that, that Jesus teaches the disciples here in, in the Upper Room Discourse, which we all know is John chapters 13 through 17, um, <laughs> here in this section of Scripture, it, it is somewhat shocking to us and uh, tragically often misunderstood and misinterpreted both by Calvinists and Arminians. So this should be a lot of fun tonight. The Lord Jesus teaches in John chapter 15, after saying a great deal about loving him and so obeying him. John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Talks about giving them the Holy Spirit, several other things, and talks about if they uh, will do what he asks, and so abide in him, then the Father will come and make his abode with him. That's 14, 21, and 23. 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, will disclose myself to him. And then one of the disciples asks him, Judas, not Iscariot, Asked him, what's, what's the deal? And Jesus said in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That sounds very conditional. The arrangement Jesus seems to be describing there, very conditional arrangement. And here in this church, we teach the unconditional nature of your salvation by grace through faith. In keeping with the teaching of the scriptures in Genesis, as Paul will use Genesis 15, 6 in Abraham's faith as the paradigm in Romans 4 to make absolutely certain that our faith alone in Christ alone is the only basis for what we tend to call our salvation, our justification. The tendency is to say, well, not so fast. We haven't really understood it till we read the conditional stuff. And in John 15, he continues the conditional stuff with the metaphor of the vine and the branches. I've taught this to you a great deal, but it has been a while. We walked through this earlier in this series on um, 
the basics of the Christian faith. We've talked about it in the Christian spiritual life and when we taught through the upper room discourse. But it's such an easy passage. It's such a great image for us to grab hold of. And it's so helpful to think about every single day. And so I think we have to revisit it regularly. Jesus says, by way of illustration, he did a lot of illustrations. He said a lot of metaphors. He didn't say, take and eat for this is like my body. That's a simile. He said it as a metaphor, take and eat, this is my body. Remember that simile and metaphor in second grade? I don't know when they're teaching it now. If they are even teaching it, uh, (laughs) you have to learn to think and learn technical language. A simile is saying something's like something. A a metaphor is saying something is something, but it's not really that in the literal uh, sense. It's a figure of speech. Like, like, yeah, like, 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 yeah. Like the kids starting in around 1995 are like something. They like started talking in similes like a lot. But in verse one of chapter 15, he says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser and every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, I I will point out as we go, the word to take away would most commonly in Koine Greek in the Bible be translated to lift up. And we learn from viticulture that this is actually what happens when you have a branch that's otherwise healthy but doesn't bear fruit. There's something, it's got, there's a water problem, there's an air problem, there's a sun problem. And so lift it up to get more air, and more sun, maybe just the ticket to get the, that branch to bear fruit. And so um, I think it's probably better translated, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, should be translated, he lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Everybody ready for some pruning? Come on, Father, bring the pruning shears. I can't wait. This is going to hurt. But that's what it means. He prunes it, meaning that there's a, there's a little branch that's doing well, but if you cut it back, it'll do more. And this is viticulture. First century agriculture, they know this is part of the reason to have land is to plant a vineyard so that you can celebrate together and rejoice and serve the Lord's table, for example. And the fruit of the vine is a big part of scripture. Lou, you're going to do a series pretty soon on honey in the Bible. Uh, Next, we want the one on grapes and what you do with them. And we can start with Noah and how you get it wrong, right? But the point is, in the first century, this is well known. This is one of the great parts of life is that you have fruit and you have have a vineyard and you enjoy this and it's part of God's blessings. And so... um, Obviously, the vine dresser wants to get a maximum yield out of the ground and its nutrients and the water and the plant and all that goes into getting grapes. And the reason to have a vine, I want to argue primarily, is not because you like pretty green vines. It's because you want big, beautiful grapes. And you want, um, uh, to, you want grapes because you want the vintage. And so this is, this is known. This, and so for them to talk about you are the branches, I'm, the, I'm the, the plant, I'm the vine, you're the branches on the vine, that's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful metaphor of staying connected, of being part of one another. 
And it's just the same language of being in him in a personal experiential way, not positionally in this case. John, this isn't Paul, this is John. And he's talking about staying connected. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What? Well, clean and prune is the same word in Greek. So you're already pruned. You've been rendered addressed. You've been addressed and, and like by pruning. Same word, cleaning. It's katharizo. Um, you've been pruned. You've been cleaned by the word which I've already spoken to you. And then he commands, and this is the shocking part of this. Abide in me is in the imperative mood. Do it. He doesn't command himself. He says, this is the nature of the arrangement between us, I and you. You stay connected to me. And I and you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. So that's kind of a direct parallel he's making between the branch and them. The branch stays connected to the vine. If it gets cut off, no fruit, obviously. And so staying connected to the vine is essential in this description. And what is Jesus going for? Why is there agriculture anyway? Because you like to stand in the sun or crouch down in the sun? Because you don't have anything else to do but get your fingernails dirty? Because, you know, it's, it's a lovely... No, you're going for something. I understand there's a, there's a, a joy to the process. Under, I, I have been told that. <laughs> but the reason to do it is you're looking for a, for a yield. You don't plant your seedlings and then they all die and say, oh, that was so fun. No, you, you want to see a harvest. You want to see fruit. And that's the topic. This is the productivity. This is what God gets out of us in this passage. All right. My favorite summary of this passage is verse five. It's a beautiful summary. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. Know your job, you're not supposed to be the vine. You don't get to be just a stick bearing fruit because you have to stay connected. Your job is to be the branch, right? He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Explanation, without me, separated from me, cut off from me, you can do nothing. So he's describing the beautiful arrangement of the normative Christian life. He's saying what it means to be with him and to work with him. Now, they're already believers from his word. And so now let's talk about the various interpretations so far. I, you and I very likely have this in common. We are heirs. As far as I know, all of you, we are, and I don't know who all is there, but we're heirs of the Reformation. Started in 1517 with October 31st with, with Martin Luther. It officially started there. I mean, that's the official act we can point to. The time on the calendar, that's it. When he did the 95 Theses, 
but we're, we're heirs to this reformation, and so we're reformed, right? Well, it depends on what you mean. And today, in the neo-Calvinist, the neo-reformed movement, no, I'm not that. But if you believe, for example, that Scripture is to be interpreted literally, like in terms of the author's intent, that grows largely out of Calvin and Luther and the Reformation for our culture, for our time today. That we're heirs of their approach to the text, and we say, wait, 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 do that with prophecy. And they said, no, we're with Augustine, so we, we go use their method on the whole Bible, not just part of it. But just for example, we're heirs to the Reformation in a lot of ways, and it's, it's beautiful. So the Reformed approach to this is that what Calvin was famous for, one of his adages that I disagree with. If you read the Institutes of Calvin and you, you think like I do about the Bible, you'll agree with the, the vast majority of what he says. But some of the distinctive things have an outsized Calvinistic, they're distinctive. And so some of those things I disagree with. For example, Calvin is the one, we think, who first said, we're saved by grace through faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. So it's the kind of faith that somehow is supposed to be initial in a forensic transaction where you trust in Christ and are declared righteous, justified in the instant that you trust in Christ. That faith is supposed to be, they're, they're trying to jam James 2 and the Christian experience into what an unbeliever does when he becomes a believer. And, and we've got a problem with that because James is talking to Christians. And you believers can have a dead faith. You can be walking after the flesh and not trusting in Christ in the moment. And James is very valuable for us as believers when James says that that faith can't justify, that faith can't save. What is James even talking about is the question. See, what Calvin is doing is he's trying to reconcile and jam things together that shouldn't be jammed together. You are not saved by faith plus works. And Calvin would be like, right, but you got to have those works or you didn't have the right kind of faith. And the, the problem is we're talking about the Christian experience for someone who's been born again. Now, here's what you get with this. Here's, here's the, the messy problem of trying to jam discipleship truth into regeneration truth. Phase two stuff into phase one. Here's what happens is that you never know in the system, normally the Westminster system, you never really know if you're really elect because perseverance means that you never waver and you always produce fruit in keeping with repentance so that you're guaranteed only if you live a life of works. And a helpful theologian coined the phrase experimental predestinarians. Yes, we believe in election. We believe in, in predestination and we believe that the elect will be saved uh, because they're elect and all that. But we don't know if we are elect unless our, our life bears it out. That's why the Presbyterian, the Calvinist biographies always want to emphasize the last words. We know the last words of many Presbyterians because their biographers wanted to show that they persevered to the end. And so phase one never stops. You never are confident that you're regenerate even though Jesus says here, you're clean from the word I told you. And he says the same thing in John 13 when he washes their feet. It's very explicit. Peter, you're, you're in. You're a believer. Not all of you. Judas is not. But, but you are. And he said, well, then wash my head and my hands. He said, no, you've already taken a bath. Peter, you're a believer. 
that, that's, that issue is settled. This is something more. And it's difficult language, I understand. It, I'm trying to do a little theology with you tonight. So I, I don't like that my faith isn't settled, that I've actually trusted in Christ, and that somehow my works after the fact are going to be my assurance, but I'll never really have sufficient assurance that I have the life. And that doesn't seem to be the way the Bible presents it, but I understand why someone theologically would reason that way. But I'd rather read the Bible than, than reason. So some of you would rather reason than read the Bible. And there's another problem with this passage. Our friends that will agree with me about this will then say that this means faith. Abiding in Christ means trusting in Christ. And so he's only talking to people that need to become believers. Because if you have trusted in Christ sufficiently, and I'm like, you mean like a little child? You have to become like a little child to come to me? You mean like a little childlike faith, a little more than none at all? No, no, no. If you have sufficient faith, then this bearing fruit business will be inevitable. It's a guarantee. In fact, if you don't bear fruit, then we're going to keep reading about you going in the fire. You're going to hell. And that's what will be done. I think that that interpretation of this passage is very uh, inapplicable. It's very difficult to apply it. And uh, that's not the standard of orthodoxy or exegesis, but I think that's a problem. Here's the other side of this. One of Calvin's students was a guy named Jake. James in English, Jacob in all other languages, um, Arminius. And a lot of people don't know that he was actually part of, brought up in the schoolhouse of Geneva. He comes right out of this ministry. And his remonstrance issues are issues with the system being developed on the issue of predestination. And one of Arminius's points, he didn't say it like the Arminians do today, but one of his points was, we're really not so sure that you're, you're saved once, osas, once saved, always saved. I'm not sure about that, that truly elect someone can't lose it. And we get our assurance from the scriptures. If you have the son, you have the life. And the new birth language in John 3 and, and it's faith in Romans 4 and 5. And it's just all through the scriptures, it seems to be very clear that it's a work of God's grace, not of our works. What our responsibility to do is trust in Christ as our savior. But what the, uh, the people that follow Arminius, do you all know who those are? You know who those people are? Arminians, well, of course. Well, do you know who that is today? That's Methodists, all the Wesleyan systems, all your Pentecostal denominations, Assemblies of God, um, uh, Church of God, all of those things, and uh, other things I don't know, but th those are the key places. Wesley, here in America, the, the, the Methodists are, were touted in church history here in the United States and the colonies as the first denomination to go over a million people. So heavily influenced. Methodism was so powerful that a little girl, a little, little, little genius, blinded shortly after birth, um, memorized many of the Psalms and much of the Pentateuch as a child raised in a Baptist household, had an experience at a Wesleyan conference and says that's what, that was her conversion after years of trusting in Christ. And that'd be Fanny Crosby. Uh, heavy influence in the culture on this heartwarming experience you're supposed to have that then you really got it because you had this inner experience 
And, and I, I'm not going after Methodism, I'm going after Wesley. And well, I'm not going over Methodists. That's, that's, I, but there's a problem in my view with this system and this approach. But anyway, what, they're more clear about the way this faith and works thing goes. They'll say that sure, it's faith alone to get in, but it's works to stay in. And so uh, you don't get saved by your works, but you can lose it if you don't resist sin. If you sin to a certain extent that you've lost your salvation. It's right here in the passage, they say. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Because we all know that if you see the word fire or burned, then that means the lake of fire, and that's the destiny of all those, Satan and his fallen angels, and all those who have rejected Christ at the end of of the Bible. So that's what that has to refer to. Simple. Well, obviously, I reject that interpretation. I think it's a mess. Here's an interesting thing that's going on in theology out there today, in evangelical theology. In the schoolhouses, there's this new idea called the new perspective on Paul. It's new, first written about, I think, in 1977. It takes a while for ideas to catch on. Some of you have heard of it. James James. Dunn, Jimmy Dunn is a famous Romans commentator who's really adopted this. N.T. Wright is the other promulgator of this idea. And um, in the last 20 years, it's really wreaked havoc on the interpretation of the Apostle Paul among many young seminary students and pastors, the new perspective on Paul. Here's, that's the, that's the popular language. What you're supposed to call it is covenant gnomism. Mm. You might not be surprised if I had to read about this lately. They're saying that Paul is saying that you're saved by faith alone to get in, but you have to keep covenant and do the works of the covenant to stay in based on a misreading that they have of Exodus and God's dealings with Israel with the conditional relationship of Mount Sinai covenant. And it's, this is a subset of covenant theology, and of course it's a big mess, but it's very Arminian. It's very, you can lose your salvation if you didn't work. So I like to say um, in both cases, you're sort of backloading the gospel with works. You're saying you have to work to earn your salvation. I don't believe Arminians claim you have to work in order to be saved. They are just saying you have to work to stay saved. Calvinists are saying if you don't work, then you weren't saved at all in the first place. And so your assurance in both cases goes to your performance. But some of us are more diligent than others. Some of us are more OCD than others. Some of us are going to focus so hard on our works that we lose sight of Jesus. And that's not what the Bible is even talking about. This is not about getting in. This is about bearing fruit. He's telling them how. And it's so rich if we just let him do that. And consider his audience. They're already clean from his word. He's already, they've received. They're not risking hellfire if they don't stay connected in a personal fellowship sense. He's telling them in probably the most important passage of the Bible, what real fellowship with God and Christ looks like. 
It's organic, if you'll pardon the expression. It's connected. It's living. It's Christ and me staying connected to him. And what that looks like is the bearing of much fruit. How can you bear fruit as a Christian in John chapter 15? Do you know how? Abide in Christ. Now, is there an inevitability to bearing fruit if you abide in Christ? There is. Think about that. Like if I stay connected to him in the sense he's describing, I will inevitably bear fruit. That's the arrangement. But what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that abiding mean? That's kind of the question that we're getting at. Verse 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you're in the status of a, a living branch connected to the vine, if you're abiding in me and my words are abiding in you, ask whatever you wish. I think that what you wish has a lot to do with his word abiding in you. In other words, God in his word teaches me what to want. It doesn't mean you just got a free coupon for anything you could imagine, right? To, to ask for it. You're abiding in him. There's a, there's a consequence in your soul and what you think and what you want. My father's glorified by this answering prayer that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Now notice he's got prayer, ask whatever you want, connected to the bearing of fruit in the discussion. You just put it in there side by side. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. And so where does fruit come from? Abiding in Christ. What, what's involved in that? Certainly asking. There's certainly prayer and requesting for being fruitful. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You'll abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Oh, no. I had a real mystical, goofy feeling about this until he said, keep my commandments. And now it's like I have stuff I have to do. I told you it'd be inevitable if you abide in Christ, you'll bear much fruit. We'll give you another one. In Galatians 5.16, in a parallel passage to what he's talking about here, Paul is talking about the work of the spirit and the life of the believer. It's parallel to this discussion. The Holy Spirit bears fruit in Galatians 5. It's very parallel. Uh, Paul also calls him the spirit of Christ because the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus is empowering you in your earthly sojourn to do the works that God has for you. So there's a great common thread here between Galatians 5 and John 15. I, I love that connection, bearing fruit. Now, he says, but I say in 516, walk by the spirit, walk in dependence on the power supplied by the Holy Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, there's an inevitability here. The if, the if then is, if I am walking in the Spirit, then it is inevitable that I cannot in any way, who may plus the subjunctive, I cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. I can't do what my sin nature is telling me to do. I can't because I'm walking by the Spirit. See, there are things that are inevitable here, but they're, in, they're also conditional. Are you walking by the Spirit is the question. See, what we want to do, what's popular in the jam together summary theologies that ignore the scriptures and, and do human reasoning, what we try to do is say, well, it's inevitable that you'll walk by the Spirit if you're a Christian. Is that why Paul gave you that imperative? 
But I say, in the imperative mood, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Go on as a lifestyle, as a conscious, responsible choice you're to make, walk by the Spirit. And again, you might ask, and you should question, and ask God, and think about this, and meditate on it. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does that mean, walk in the Spirit? I believe it means to rely upon the power supplied by the Holy Spirit. I think that's what he's talking about. That's my understanding of what he's saying. Sounds a lot like abiding in the vine, too, and deriving your nourishment. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Can somebody draw a line between John 15, 11 and Galatians 5? These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. How does that relate to Galatians 5, 22? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. See, we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about the Christian spiritual life. We're talking about the abiding in Christ moment by moment, having a fellowship with God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're discussing. We're discussing salvation phase two truth that is abiding and, 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 and binding on every believer and is not a question. See, here's the, here's the horror is that someone says, yeah, that's just Romans four. I've believed. You have believed. I don't read a thing about having had believed. Uh, Great, you've believed. Now what are you going to do? This is Philippians 2. This is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is the one working in you both to will and to do, to want and to do what pleases him. That's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. To put on Christ, to take on the character of Christ. We're talking in various passages about the way Christians are supposed to live. And it's where Christian performance comes from, Christian success. Now, I've told you verse five is my favorite summary because it, I think it renders a judgment on my works as a stick. When I go about as a stick in the energy of the flesh to do what I want to do separate from what God would do through me, Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Heap it all up in a pile. Put a big sticky note on that pile, nothing. And this is the energy of the flesh. This is the works that we repent of, the dead works. Wait, I don't want anything to do with my sinful nature, with what might be produced through the carnality of my self-will. I don't want anything to do with that. Neither does God. He considers it nothing. And here's the problem, that this is a conditional passage. You may not be abiding in Christ. Now, I'm going to try something analog with you. I'm going to try to do something that Joel has been setting me up to do for months. We have a new camera up here that can show you my notes. And I have them to show you. And you all just have to be patient with me for a second. I'm going to try to slide these notes over where you can see them. Thank you for holding your applause to the end. Now, now the, the notes are illuminated better if I don't stand right here, like here. Isn't that better? Yeah. 
You're like, it's not good, but it's better. Okay. So these are my analog notes. We had some, some, some computer issues tonight. And I want to talk about some things that are obvious from the passage. You ready? It's almost like PowerPoint, but not. What we find in bearing fruit in John 15 is that it's not inevitable. It's all conditional. It's all for believers. The question is, in this moment, doing this work, whatever it is you're doing, are you abiding in Christ? Now, I haven't defined abiding in Christ, but it seems exegetically from the passage that that's the question. And this is the horror to me of interpretation. People will say that if you're truly a believer, then you inevitably are abiding. But that's not the Bible. That's not your experience either. But we don't exegete your experience. We let the Bible correct your experience. This is not inevitable. This is very clearly from what Jesus says with all these imperative moods, volitional. Do you know what volitional means? It means you're using your volition. (laughs) Neat, Pastor Dave, what does that mean? It means you're making a choice. You've got a yes button or a no button. It's really not a yes or no button. That's not true. You've got a switch. It's a digital on or off. It's a yes or no. And your positive volition, your yes to what God would have, will say, whatever the Lord Jesus has for me, based on who he is and what he's done for me, for the manifest love that is infinite that I could never fully grasp, but I, but I am awash in when I think of the work of Christ and his creation and his cross work for me, I can obey him. I choose to trust him. I choose to stay connected. It is volitional. And it is not, what he's describing, this fruit bearing, is not unconditional. Covenant theology as a system will say, you know, you dispensationalists with your new system, where Darby starts coming around to the way he thinks about the church and its destiny in about 1826, 27. Covenant theology, 1780s. It's not much older. They'll try to tell you it's the system that's been around. It's not what Augustine was saying. But anyway, as the system, covenant theologians want to say that there's these two conjecture covenants, the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden and the covenant of grace. And then they want to say, see, you can see our system all through the Bible because there are all these covenants that God makes and they make it all the same thing. And the Bible explicitly does not do this. For example, um, Abraham and Davidic and Palestinian and New Covenant are all the same kind of thing. They're God saying unilaterally, I'm going to do this. And I'll make an arrangement with you. I'll do this. And it's like Abraham's asleep as God cuts the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. God goes between the pieces of the the offering, not both parties, because God is unilaterally doing this. They've called it the, the ancient Near Eastern Grant Treaty or the Grant Covenant. But, but what happens at Mount Sinai is also called a covenant. God calls it his covenant. And he makes a covenant with Israel, and that's a suzerain vassal treaty, and it's a different type of arrangement. It's a different document. And do you know where that comes out very clearly? In the book of Hebrews, when he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. New covenant is a grand covenant, like Abraham, like David, like Palestinian covenant, the land covenant. But the, but, and so what we're saying, I'm just summarizing for you, Covenant theology is not looking at the actual biblical covenants and intuitive or inductively assessing them and letting them develop the theology. It's trying to force everything to fit into its idea that covenant just means salvation for one 
problem, one part of the problem. And so you get in the covenant by faith, but you keep the covenant by, or you stay in the covenant by works. And nope. But this is not unconditional. And I've got beloved brothers in Christ who profess grace theology who think that what Jesus is talking about in John 15 is inevitable. That you, if you're truly a believer, will truly perform and it's automatic. But apparently, Jesus is warning them not to be a waste, not to be wasted. It isn't guaranteed. It is not a one-shot decision. There is a one-shot decision-ness about how you first trusted in Christ. And it, it, it's not, and don't misunderstand, I'm not cheapening what God the Holy Spirit did when he convicted of you, you of your need for a Savior and you trusted in Christ as your Savior. But it is simple, childlike faith. It, it's hard for us to imagine that that's what gets me eternal life and the new birth and a relationship with God. It's hard for us to believe that. They call it easy believism, that you simply trust in Christ and it's faith alone. But it, it, that's, that's an arrogant thing from people that had really bad theology. Don't go with Bonhoeffer on theology, please. Go with him on, on uh, patriotism, but not theology, because he had a lot of bad ideas. But he was in a culture of theological bad ideas. And so I you know, understand, but not your model. See, it's not easy to believe that all I have to do is trust in Christ because that means I can't do anything to be saved and it's only Jesus. But see, that is what we'll call a moment in time where you, before you were not a believer, you understood Christ, you became a believer. If you were in Cornelius' household, as Peter was preaching to him, there'd be a point where you weren't speaking with other languages and then there'd be a point where you were all of a sudden with the household speaking other languages because he had preached Christ in his resurrection and you had believed that and the Holy Spirit had come upon you as he does when people believe. And in that day, they spoke foreign languages uh, in the early church sometimes when the Spirit arrived, like he did at Pentecost, and we call this the Gentile Pentecost in, in Cornelius' house. But it's not a one-shot decision that Jesus is talking about, is it? He's talking about your lifestyle. Lifestyle, what do you mean lifestyle? Well, you're abiding in the, the plant as a branch so that you live a life of bearing fruit. Now, don't try to back this back into John 3 and say you're in a lifelong process of bo being born again. No, that's a totally different topic. It's related, but it's a different topic. Birth is thankfully a thing that ends. The pro it's an 18-hour one-shot event, and then you don't have to do that anymore for that one. <laughs> it is a lifestyle. What Jesus is describing is lifestyle. Is that showing up on, still there? Okay. And... Um, it is moment by moment. We're going to sing moment by moment this Sunday. It is faith and focus and fellowship has to be what he's doing with abiding in him. I can tell you what abiding in Christ is not. It is not a sinful, disobedient, self-important anger. It isn't telling yourself a lie so that you can feel better about yourself by believing it. Abiding in Christ is not hatred born from bitterness, which is anger that cooled and wasn't addressed. You're like, well, yeah, pastor, that's, none of those are what Jesus represents. If we take very carefully the metaphor and look at it closely, what does the branch get from the vine? 
everything. See if I drew a picture of this. Yeah, I drew a picture of that. There we go. I know it's not good, but it's good enough. You get the idea. You got the roots, you have the ground level, and then somebody put wires up or, or, or lines to hang those vines on. That's what my vineyard would look like um, if it was successful. Of course, we have some grapes, some more, some, some less. What does this look like? I forgot it was going to, you know, y'all, it's you guys, so we've got to put more fruit. You know, see these down here, these weren't bearing much fruit, so he lifted them up so they could get more sun and more air and, and, and bear fruit. What does it mean that you're a branch and you stay connected to the vine? Abide just means stay connected, stay with me. I think this is the bumper sticker, stay with me. Stay with me. How easily do we lose sight of our Savior? How militated is this world against our focus on the Savior? I walk by faith, not by sight. Peter makes this explicit. We knew him after the flesh in this way. We don't know him this way any longer. We walk by faith. I used to see him and talk to him, and now I have to, I have to deal with this absence. And, and in, in the most wonderful, exquisite way, absence is making the heart grow fonder. Now, he's with us until the end of the age, but he's not physically present with us. Here's what it can't mean. Here's what abiding in Christ can't mean is that I stay with him physically because he's not here with us physically. So what can it mean? The branch, if you break it off, and he talked about the branches get cut off and thrown into the fire. The branch that breaks off has no access to the water and the nutrients of the soil has no ability to live, no ability to be fruitful. I think that's a description. When you are snapped off of carnality, I think it's Romans chapter eight. It's the physical, I'm sorry, the spiritual functional death of someone that is not staying connected. And so if I say it that way, there's two things that might happen. You might say that's not bad enough for what he's describing. You're, you're cheapening, you're, you're weakening how bad it is that someone wouldn't stay connected. No, I'm trying to explain how awful carnality is, how horrible it is that we walk after the flesh and not walk by the spirit. It's, it's horrific, but we get used to it. Our consciences get seared. We get our minds on earthly things and find ourselves functionally, I'm sorry to say, enemies of the cross. Because our minds are set on earthly things. Our God becomes our appetite. And this is not how we're supposed to live. Ah, oh, you pastor, Christians can't live like that. That's not true. You can't have Christians that, that are real believers that are like that. Have you read the book of First and Second Corinthians? That's the passage that teaches us to think this way. First Corinthians chapters, uh, chapters 2 through 3, 2, 1 through 3, 3. That's the, that's the carnal. They're walking like unbelievers but not real believers. No, they're saints. He says in, I wish he hadn't, you know. I mean, in chapter one, he says they're saints. In chapter three, one, he says they're walking like unbelievers. They're carnal and they're not spiritual, but they're supposed to be. And this is the problem of oversimplifying everything. See, if the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is the exact same as the filling ministry of the Spirit, then we've got inevitable Christian performance. There's no branch that doesn't bear fruit. There's no branch that gets lifted up. There's no snipping off the branch that doesn't bear fruit and, and gets thrown away and is a waste. Now, let me get to that waste. 
if what I'm saying is correct, that he's talking about Christians and various outcomes for whether or not they abide in him, okay? You don't, you're not bearing fruit. I'll give you some more attention. The vine dresser is going to help you to bear more fruit. And that might be pruning. That's going to hurt. But Lord, bring it. Make me fruitful. I want to bear fruit. Now, if I'm right that he's talking about Christians, including the ones that get broken off and thrown into the fire, then I'm saying that it's far worse than anyone thinks that we waste our lives on ourselves, that we get distracted from God and from the word of God and not stay occupied with Jesus Christ. I think that's what abiding in Christ is. It's a, 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 a conscious and an unconscious focus on our Savior. It's, it's, it's helped along with some intentional, intensive time in the word every single day that makes you like a tree planted by the water, firm roots. Psalm 1, you meditate on his law day and night. It's a daily intensive look at the word, but you know, some of you are daily word people and you also know that there are times in your day where you might have lost sight that you're actually supposed to be connected, staying connected. Stay with me, Jesus is saying. Stay connected. Get what you need from me. Derive it from me. What's the promised outcome, y'all? What does Jesus promise if you will do this? It's a personal, subjective experience. It's in verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that, you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Personal, subjective experience of real joy. What are the alternatives? Think about it. What are the alternatives? Fun. For fun's sake, there's nothing wrong with fun unless it is taking away my joy. And that's where we are. This is where the civilization is. I saw a thing today. Somebody was talking about how we, we, shouldn't, um, we shouldn't be meeting like this in buildings with pulpits and pastors. And the old thing about how the early church was you know, communion was a, was a fellowship meal and it wasn't really a, 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 a sacrament, which I don't like the word sacrament, but they're saying what we do in church now isn't, isn't biblical because the early church met in homes or whatever. And the problem with that is there's a whole history of Christianity to look at. And we learned over 2,000 or 1,500 years that if you lose sight of the word of God and you just go through motions that you don't really have a Christian life. You have a lot of people going through motions that don't have Christ. Kneel now, stand up now, take the wafer now. You've come to the church, the clergy, we've given you the wafer, now go. And that's not Christian. And you don't think Christian. You're not, you don't have the, the spirit if you don't have Christ and you have trusted in Christ as your savior. And so we've said since the Reformation, at least, it's about the word and we need more of it than we think. Do we really believe that in America in 20, 21st century that we are more in the word than we have been prior in our history? I mean, we should be. We have more access in more ways to the word of God, but we're not in it as a culture. It's, it's not that there's too much teaching of the word. It's that there's not enough attention to the teaching of the word. So I believe that abiding in Christ is a matter of attention. It's a matter of focus. It's a matter of staying with him. And I believe that can be summarized in one word. I believe it's what John's topic is, same writer in 1 John. I think that word is fellowship. I'm trusting him. 
I'm thinking of him. I'm aware of what he said in his word. It's real to me because I've paid attention today. I've started the day with some scripture. I've started the day with some prayer. I'm thinking of him. I'm staying connected. And so because I have his word in my heart, because the Holy Spirit is taking that word and using it, because I'm walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit in that way, I'm having fellowship with God. I'm having his word and his truth and his righteousness in common with him. It's dynamic. And it's the description of the Christian life. And so, so how does that fit in with keeping the commandments? I want to turn off my illustration for a second. That, okay. How does that fit in with keeping his commandments? Well, I've been in his word. I've talked to God and in in I've prayed to the Father in the name of the Son, as Paul says. I'm staying connected. I'm, I'm considering him. And in his word, I read, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I've loved you. He says it again almost exactly. John 13, 34, he says it in John 15, 12, the next, the next verse. And then I do something very disciplined. Would y'all do this too, please? Something very disciplined. I don't say, yeah, I'm good. I don't try to, try to squint my eyes and say, ah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on that. That's, that's there. But I take that one seriously and I, and I sink down and think about, is this what I'm doing? Am I being pleasing to him in this commandment? Love one another. And then ask yourself some who, what, when, why questions. How am I doing as a lifestyle this? How is my life showing this? And then do the really, really helpful question. This is the strategic one. You ready? I mean, that was, that's helpful, but this is super helpful. That was, that was some carbs. Let's get to the protein of the, of the thing. How am I not? In what case am I not? And do a little self-assessment. Where is this not like it should be? And that's some prayer time. That's some self-assessment, some self-evaluation. This is how you want to be objective and careful with God's instructions. I'm baffled by those that claim to teach God's word and claim to represent God's grace as represented in his word, who are such theologians that they haven't done the exegesis of this kind of passage on what it is to abide in Christ, including keeping his commandments. I think it's because we haven't figured out what sin really is. And we haven't dealt with the fact that we still struggle against sin. Not keeping Jesus' commandments would be one of my favorite definitions of sin. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, don't eat. They didn't keep that commandment. They ate. It's the origin of sin. And I know that's, there's a lot more to that. But think about it. One of the, how do you define sin? Well, anything, what do the CEF people say? Anything that breaks God's law or, uh, or makes him sad, some have said, or, or he doesn't like, falls short of his character. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. Got a lot of ways in the Bible to define sin, but I think certainly one of them must be not doing what he said or doing what he said not to do. And this is the question of obedience. It's, it's, 
And yeah, so I don't keep God's word perfectly and I don't obey him perfectly and I recognize that Jesus paid for my sins and I'm forever in Christ in a Pauline sense of position in Christ. But in my experience, since that is my eternal position and I'm seated in glory at the right hand of the Father, you with me? Since I'm that, am I staying connected to him in my conscious step-by-step walk through my life? Now, if you're OCD and you want to keep checking on this, keep checking on this, keep checking on this, just relax in Christ and trust him. But most of us aren't struggling with that. We're struggling with the, the, uh, the attractions and distractions of the world. We are worried about all the things that you can explain. This is why you'd be worried about it. What's one? I got to f- feed the family. I got to make a living. So I've got to focus on the job. You need to do your work better than anyone else at work because you're working for the Lord to please him and you're walking by the spirit as you do that as worship toward him. And you need to feed your family by God providing for you who is responsible to provide for you because you're seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. And you need to do both those things. You need to work for God and your work is what um, uh, Ephesians 6 says. And not as with eye service as men pleasers, but to the Lord. And you need to do what Jesus said in Matthew 6 and recognize that you're not working for your living. You're not working for the money. You're working for your Savior. And you're doing it to glorify him in every step. Staying connected to the Lord Jesus in faith, trusting him. This is the faith of the ongoing Christian experience. And beloved, every test is a test of faith. Do I trust him? Staying connected is consciously being aware that you're trusting him, that you're walking with him, that you're responsible to be pleasing to him and in the Holy Spirit's power you can be. This is Christian spiritual life. This is the real deal. And it can be called fellowship. It is the product of the filling ministry of the spirit with the word of Christ richly dwelling within us. It is a supernatural way of life and it cannot be lived apart from regular intake of God's word. It can be lived. You can be regularly in the word and not live it though, right? You can, I'll take it in all the time. And you're not walking with him. You're not abiding in him. But it is not, beloved, simple, I believed in Christ and so I'm abiding. No, you believed in Christ and you have his life and now you're responsible to abide in him. And that's volitional, It is not guaranteed. It is moment by moment, and it certainly involves our dependence on him. Our Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to think about your word and our responsibility to you. As we have fellowship with you through your son, which always requires a consistent trust in you. Trust in you to do what you said, to be who you've said you are, to do with us what you've promised, Father. The more we become aware of your word, the more we become responsible to trust you with the things that you've said, that you want good, eternal life, good blessings, good, wonderful riches for us, that you are not opposed to us because we are in your son. Father, as we think about these things, as we consider what it is to walk by your spirit and so not fulfill the lust of the flesh, to be filled by means of the spirit with the results of how we communicate to you and to others, Father, to abide in your son, all ways of describing having fellowship with you because of your wonderful grace to us. Father, help us appreciate these riches and rejoice as Jesus promised 
He said that if we do this, if we keep your command, that your joy, our joy would be brought to a full extent and we expect it. Thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.